We take a look at the first volume of tie-ins to Crisis on Infinite Earths. In Crisis on Infinite Earths, Companion Deluxe Edition, Volume 1. Then Hal Jordan faces off against one of Superman's greatest villains in Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps, Volume 6, The Will of Zod, straight ahead. Welcome to the Classy Comics Podcast, where we search for the best comics in the universe. From Boise, Idaho, here is your host, Adam Graham. Now, we're going to take a look at Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, Companion Deluxe Edition, Volume 1. Before we do that, I should probably uh, offer my general perspective on Crisis. It is the event which really set the stage for all future superhero comic events, and it restarted the DC Universe. I'm not a huge fan of universe reboots, nor major crossover events in general, for reasons I've talked about on this podcast. They often distract from things that are going on in each hero's own book, and in addition to that, often really come off as trying to cash in, and often have a lot of pointless hero versus hero uh, fights, and often destroy a lot of characters, not just those that get killed off, often unnecessarily, but those who have to act totally out of character in order to make the event happen. I think Crisis misses a lot of these pitfalls, and uh, it's a bit more justified than uh, the subsequent events that have followed it for the sweeping changes that it proposed. Uh, Because this was written essentially as DC Comics was approaching the company's 50th anniversary. And not only was it DC's 50th anniversary, but DC had also acquired a lot of defunct uh, comic lines and rights to those characters, uh, including Quality Comics, Charleston Comics, and Fawcett Comics. And you had so many different characters and versions of different characters running around the DC universes. Of course, Earth-1 and Earth-2 are pretty familiar designations. However, that wasn't all that was going on. You had an Earth-3 where uh, all of the Justice League were supervillains and they ran the planet. You had another uh, Earth where there were a group of heroes led by Uncle Sam and you had Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters over in that particular universe. You had uh, other universes where quality characters were. And you had another universe uh, still where uh, Captain Marvel, a.k.a. Shazam, was in a universe in the present day. But you also had a Captain Marvel in a universe in the past. You had all of these acquired characters on other universes, and so you can see the idea of simplifying and decluttering the DC universe down to just one universe does have some appeal in making the book accessible to new readers. 
And let's just be honest, Crisis on Infinite Earths as a story is just a great sprawling epic. There are so many fantastic and fun uh, moments in the course of the uh, event. There are some heroic moments, such as Supergirl's sacrifice and the flashes, that give it a lot of resonance, as well as the ending that the Golden Age Superman gets. Not only that, what makes Crisis on Infinite Earths work, where a lot of other crossovers fall down, is that it is not a deconstruction of classic DC Comics characters. Rather, it plays tribute to them, and uh, that gives the book a much better feel uh, than I think a lot of the more nastier crossovers that have come in years uh, since. Now, the overall effect of Crisis on Infinite Earths has been mixed. Much of it has been undone over the years, and they've gone back and forth on whether there'd be multiple universes and alternate universes, uh, because those can be some fun playgrounds for writers and opportunities for stories. But the big sales numbers that Crisis uh, had set a somewhat unfortunate uh, precedent because a lot of people saw the results of Crisis and they saw dollar signs. And so they said, let's start doing more of these crossovers, one or two every year. And as such, kind of the currency and the value of seeing all these characters together has been diminished by how... Uh, common it is to see these big events. Uh, and most of them are not well written because they're not necessary, but they do often derail a lot of ongoing titles. And that, unfortunately, is one of the legacies of the success of Crisis on Infinite Earths. But that doesn't change the fact that Crisis on Infinite Earths is itself a really good story. Now, the Deluxe Companion it will come out in three volumes, the first of which uh, has been released and the next which will come soon, each collecting a lot of comics that were published around the era that tied into Crisis on Infinite Earths. It's important to note that it's really not necessary to uh, read these comics to understand Crisis. Uh, but I would say that it is essential to read Crisis to understand how these comics tie in. So I'd encourage you to check that out. That said, uh, we're going to take a look at uh, this first volume. Now, I'm going to try to summarize a lot more than I've done in the past, because when you're de dealing with uh, some of these uh, collections that have so many comics in them, the shows have gone on for ridiculous, ungodly lengths of time. So I'm going to do probably a lot more summarization than I've done in the past, just because we have so many issues in here. But I'll give you an idea of uh, what's in there. Uh, all right, so the book starts off with DC Comics Presents number 78 featuring the Forgotten Villains. And there are a lot of uh, reviewers who question why this uh, comic is even in the book. It doesn't have the uh, 
banner on it saying that it is a crisis crossover. And indeed, the end of the story features Lila, who becomes Harbinger, and the Monitor appearing on just like the last page. Uh, so it's not really essential in that regards. And it's also the second part of an ongoing story, but I do think they do a good job of getting you caught up to uh, understand what's going on. Um, oh, I do like this story included, even without the previous issue, which I think I read somewhere or another um but at any rate, it's a fun issue just because you get to see uh, a lot of pretty rare characters appearing back in the 1980s. And in many ways, uh, this sets the stage uh, for Crisis. It was written by Marv Wolfman, uh, who also wrote Crisis on Infinite Earths. And uh, you get to see a pre-crisis form of a lot of these heroes, of uh, Space Cabbie, Zero, Hulk, Rip Hunter, many of these would appear in the post-crisis DC universe, but here you get to see them in their original form, and there it's just a lot of fun seeing all of these different characters moving about in a pretty fun story. So uh, while it's not essential, I did think it was uh, amazingly fun to read. The majority of the book is actually taken up by All-Star Squadron number 50 to number 60. Now, I should explain what All-Star Squadron was. For Marvel, Roy Thomas had written a series called The Invaders, where it had taken Golden Age uh, superheroes, including Captain America and Namor, and told stories of their battles against the Third Reich. When Roy Thomas came to DC, he created All-Star Squadron, which does much the same thing, only with characters in the DCU. And I couldn't think of anyone better to uh, write a series like All-Star Squadron, given uh, Thomas's absolute love affair with uh, Golden Age comics. Uh, he's, after retiring from writing comics, has written the introduction to so many Golden Age uh, superhero uh, collected editions for both Marvel and DC. The 11 issues here cover a lot of ground, and a lot of time, to be honest, the tie-in to the events on Crisis on Infinite Earths are kind of a, a weak strand. Uh, you do have some events that happen very specifically, such as Firebrand, uh, a f female character that Roy Thomas created who replaced a male character of the same name after he was injured, is taken by Harbinger uh, to fight uh, in the crisis along with other heroes. And we get to see some of that uh, fight as they uh, get involved in an action at Cape Canaveral on one universe to try and thwart the plan of the villain of Crisis on Infinite Earths, the Anti-Monitor. However, I do think that the book is good because it really uh, includes all of these Golden Age characters before uh, the full effects of Crisis set in. And 
actually getting to see them in action and interacting and crossing over. Uh, there's just so much fun stuff to read if you're a fan of these Golden Age comics. Uh, you get to see characters from DC and quality traveling over to the world of Captain Marvel. There's a version of the Monster Society of Evil that operates in the main uh, DC universe led by the super intelligent worm Mr. Mind until he is actually driven back into the uh, universe of uh, Captain Marvel to set the stage for that classic Golden Age storyline. You get a retelling of All-Star Comics number 13 where uh, many superheroes are kidnapped and sent off into outer space with rockets. In the original story, they just went to other planets in these rockets. But in the updated version, uh, they ended up, because of all the craziness going on with Crisis, being sent to whole other universes. The Justice Society is missing for most of the run here of uh, All-Star Squadron stories making their way back one member at a time from uh, the alternate universe that they'd ended up in, though in ways that pretty much jibe with the original Golden Age story. There's also a retelling of a Seven Soldiers of Victory story from Leading Comics, and to be honest, I don't think that one works quite as well. But most of this does, and it's a great showcase for all these Golden Age heroes in their last pre-crisis appearances. An absolutely great bit is where there is a meeting of the All-Star Squadron, and except for the missing JSAers, they all show up. And you get to see them actually vote by roll call. And so you uh, see this uh, picture of each and every one of them. It did take some skill to get all of those heroes' heads uh, for headshots on a single page uh, as they were taking this vote of the membership. Now, if that sort of thing happened all the time, that would be like, whatever. It's just kind of silly. But... Given that uh, you're getting to see this as a first-time thing, it's just neat to have them debate and vote. And with so many of them, there, I mean, there are probably more of them than there are in some state legislatures. There's also just a nice picture where one of the uh, All-Star Squadron, who is also a speedster, uh, takes a picture. And of course, because he's a speedster, he can press the button and be into the picture without the benefit of a timer. And there are actually two versions of this spread. And the idea in the story is that President Roosevelt wanted this picture of the entire All-Star Squadron. And it's taken in issue 60. And there are two versions of it. As part of the Crisis on Infinite Earths, the Golden Age versions of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman were wiped from the timeline, as well as Aquaman. So the first version of the photo uh, taken showed those four heroes in it, 
And then the version that was shown to FDR at the end of the book, when the full effects of crisis have taken uh, hold, uh, shows the picture, but with those four heroes absent and others having moved in the pose. Honestly, I would really like to get All-Star Squadron number 60 and just cut out that uh, full-page picture. It would have to be a version, you know, with a beaten-up cover and stuff, so I don't want to ruin a book, either a vintage copy of All-Star Squadron number 60 or a uh, copy of the uh, $75 Crisis on Infinite Earths Companion uh, Deluxe Edition. Each of the series in the book includes an introduction, and Roy Thomas, who wrote and created All-Star Squadron, writes the introduction for the All-Star Squadron portion. And he did not like the idea of Crisis, but he did his best to be a team player and cooperate, even though uh, it would mean the end of what he was doing and what he really loved on All-Star Squadron. Though at first, DC Comics promised him that they would maintain All-Star Squadron, like in its own a little bubble universe, but then they decided, no, they weren't going to do that. He did have a few moments where he pushed back against DC, like DC told him that they didn't want him to use the Golden Age Aquaman because they intended to get rid of the character. Uh, but he did not like, uh, you know, DC pushing on that, and so that actually spurred him to have the Golden Age Aquaman show up at a meeting of the All-Star Squadron. This was my favorite section of the book, and it left me wondering why DC hasn't done more to collect that series. It's a really fun uh, read, and I, I think that there's a definite value to it. Marvel has collected all of Roy Thomas's issues of The Invaders, actually twice now, and all that uh, DC has collected is uh, these 11 issues, and then like the first 18, which ended up in a black and white Showcase Presents book, which I'm going to read eventually, and this uh, particular uh, book moved All-Star Squadron Showcase Presents up my uh, to-read list. Then we get to Fury of Firestorm number 41 and 42, and they're two different uh, sorts of books. In uh, Fury of Firestorm, Firestorm is actually composed of two people who, when combined, become Firestorm. Uh, it is Ronnie Raymond, who at the start of uh, the Firestorm series is a high school student, and then you have uh, Professor Martin Stein. Uh, and at this point in the book, Ronnie has graduated from high school and is now attending college with uh, Professor Stein teaching there. Has determined that she needs Firestorm to help fight the Anti-Monitor. And so she flies to the college that Ronnie Raymond and Martin Stein uh, are at and take Psycho Pirate along with her. Psycho Pirate is a supervillain who uh, the Monitor recruited to help uh, fight the Anti-Monitor in the Crisis. However, later on in Crisis, the Anti-Monitor would 
uh, end up uh, kidnapping uh, Psycho Pirate and getting him to switch sides. At the end of the event, Psycho Pirate was one of the only people who actually remembered the old DC Universe and was in an insane asylum. You can see some of those future events foreshadowed here. As when Psycho Pirate lands, he's really, really uh, nervous and upset and anxious, and he actually casts those feelings inadvertently onto Professor Stein. And when uh, Stein joins with Ronnie as Firestorm, those feelings lead Firestorm to really act erratically until Harbinger and Psycho Pirate can calm things down, and as they uh, proceed off to join in the crisis. In issue 42, since Firestorm is off fighting in the crisis, the fury of Firestorm actually guest stars Wonder Girl, a.k.a. Donna Troy, and uh, Firehawk, another female uh, superhero. And it kind of illustrates just the craziness of what goes on uh, during uh, Crisis as uh, they are flung back in time to the Revolutionary War and end up having to fight the British and, uh, at the end of the comic, uh, find a way to get home. I know very little about these characters right off, and it's possible that the original readers may have known more about them. But that said, this is just a pretty decent superhero story where you don't really have to know a lot about all of these different characters to enjoy the action. That leads us to the last part of this book, which is uh, from the Green Lantern Corps, issues 194 to 199 of Green Lantern. At this point in the comic, Hal Jordan had relinquished his uh, ring and given up on being a Green Lantern so that he could try and have success in his relationship with his long-time love interest, Carol Ferris, who also turned into his long-time enemy, Star Sapphire. Unfortunately, this really did not work out for Hal. At this point, there was also a new Green Lantern on Earth, Jon Stewart. And issue 195 really opens on a high for him. He's just had a big victory, and he also has a love interest in fellow uh, Green Lantern, Katma. However, this happy moment is shattered by Harbinger coming to recruit uh, John for the battle against the Anti-Monitor. There is a bit of uh, fighting until John realizes this is legitimate and decides to leave with Katma being left to watch over Earth. A minority of the Guardians have a plan to save the universe and stop the uh, Monitor, and it involves uh, getting a new Green Lantern for Earth. But Hal Jordan is not chosen as the replacement, even though he's become available again, uh, and a bit listless wandering about after things didn't work out with Carol. Instead, Guy Gardner who has been in a coma since he was Green Lantern for a day, uh, several dozen issues back, is chosen as the new Green Lantern over Hal. And despite Hal's pleading to 
uh, take the ring, if not out of his own desire to have it back, but for fear of what Guy Gardner's going to do, as he views him as very much a damaged person. What Gardner does is recruit a team of supervillains and various miscreants from Earth to join with a bunch of space villains to attack the anti-monitor's birthplace, go back in time and destroy the spot where the anti-monitor sprung from. Eventually, one of the Guardians does summon Hal and offer him a ring to assist in the fight, but say that as part of accepting that ring, he has to agree to follow Guy Gardner's orders. To Hal, this idea seems utterly crazy. He says that Guy Gardner is damaged, and the Guardian actually agrees with him, but says that Guy Gardner is damaged in a way that will actually help him achieve his mission, as he has no doubt about what he's been told to do. John Stewart, meanwhile, has returned from Earth after a victory in Crisis that appeared to be a, the defeat of the Anti-Monitor. But there were several times in Crisis where the Anti-Monitor appeared to be defeated, but ultimately came back for another uh, round. And this was the case where the Anti-Monitor has another plan. And he is just outraged at what Guy is doing in releasing all of these criminals and is going to try and stop him from leaving when Hal appears and informs uh, John that uh, he'll have to fight uh, him because uh, Guy Gardner's mission is necessary and that he's talked to both sides among the Guardians and feels that this is necessary to do. And so John and Katma... They let Guy and they let Hal and all of the people that Hal's, that uh, Guy's broken out of prison lets them go. And then within seconds, Sinestro, the uh, Green Lantern's uh, arch nemesis, shows up to tell them that they have to stop Guy Gardner from achieving his goals. Katma really doubts that Sinestro is telling the truth. But Sinestro makes an argument that what they're doing would hurt the symmetry of the universes. In the matter universe, the monitor sprang from a black spot on this moon, and in the antimatter universe, the antimonitor sprung from a white spot on the same moon. And this would disrupt the symmetry of the universe and would actually lead to its destruction. John is concerned enough that he goes to talk to the uh, Guardians. And when he does travel to Oa, the Guardians essentially say, well, on one hand, their plan could work. On the other hand, maybe not. We don't know. Uh, it's not for us to support or to oppose what Guy Gardner's doing at the behest of a minority of our members. And this leads John to wonder, why would Sinestro lie? He would lie because he happens to be the bad guy. And indeed, he was using this for his own purposes, 
and an attempt to attack the Guardians and to get his revenge on the Green Lantern Corps. However, the Guardians show that they can harness the power of the battery just as well as the Lanterns, even though they prefer the Lanterns to wield that, and they're able to repel Sinestro. However, the power battery speaks through Tomar Ray, the big Green Lantern, who tells them that uh, Guy Gardner's mission shouldn't be allowed to succeed because, essentially, the Anti-Monitor, really, his whole thing is based on chaos and disorder. But one exception to that chaos and disorder is that the Anti-Monitor has a definitive beginning and origin. If Guy Gardner and how Jordan succeed, they wouldn't uh, destroy the Anti-Monitor from history. Rather, they would untether them from the restraint of order that does hold them. And so the Green Lantern Corps pursue after them. Meanwhile, as could be predicted, uh, fissure opened up between Hal and Guy uh, over the fact that Hal refuses to kill, and Guy has no problem with that. And it's worth noting that this original take on Guy Gardner is a lot harder-edged than uh, most of the modern comics, which give him almost a sort of uh, Ben Grimm-style uh, toughness, but with a bit of uh, heart underneath all of that toughness and capacity to violence. And the whole issue does end on just a great uh, galactic battle in the sky. And it's just really fun uh, space opera. And I will note that while the other issues in this book had not been previously uh, collected, uh, these actually had been the 1980s Green Lantern stories. And this does make me interested to check out those uh stories because they're really uh, fun and with some very interesting characters and just some pretty solid art as well. Overall, this book is pretty much everything I could have asked for and I particularly liked all the All-Star Squadron stuff and so I'll give uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, The Companion, Deluxe Edition, Volume 1, a rating of classy. Speaking of the Green Lanterns, now we turn to Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps, Volume 6, The Will of Zod. And this one collects issues 37 to 41 of Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps. The book opens with Jordan laying bloodied and beaten on a uh, planet we don't know where at first. And Zod standing over him gloating, as Zod is like to do. Then we go back in time a bit to Jon Stewart threatening to quit the Green Lantern Corps after the Guardians have reconstituted themselves, the uh, six surviving members. Stewart points out that the Guardians were behind some horrific events that nearly destroyed the universe and that he's not going to be part of that again. However, these remaining surviving Guardians want to do better, and they want Stuart 
to remain where he is in order to keep them honest, to call them out if they step over the line. I will say that I can definitely see a place and a purpose for the Guardians. Like I said, I didn't like in the last volume that uh, Vendente, the writer of Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps, seems to be trying to drive everything in this universe back to an old status quo. But the Guardians do have a legitimate base, because the Green Lantern Corps are essentially an intergalactic police force. And when you're dealing with police, you need to have some source of authority and accountability outside of that force. Something that gives them that authority without some intergalactic law or organization, the Green Lantern Corps could quickly become a negative force in the universe. Of course, the Guardians themselves have uh, become that, which does lead to this sort of who watches the watchers question. But in this case, I think you kind of have the Lanterns and Guardians as checks on each other. At any rate, the comic moves from this uh, to uh, Hal Jordan and Kyle Rayner investigating a planet that has Stone Age-level technology, but has also had mining ships in the vicinity of the planet, which may indicate that you've got pirates coming to this planet and stealing their... Uh, mineral resources. They land on the planet and Kyle discovers something which is obviously not Stone Age technology. Uh, General Zod uh, comes up behind them and greets them and says, welcome to my home. And Hal goes ahead and attacks, knowing that Zod is a villain and a terrorist, and uh, Kyle uh, tries to attack as well. But Zod and his family trounce them, and they wake up in a containment cell and find their rings are gone. Zod decides to invite Hal to dinner, and it turns out that he blames the uh, Green Lanterns for not saving uh, Krypton because there was a Green Lantern who was assigned uh, to the sector of space Krypton was in. Now, under the traditional Krypton origin story, this is a bit silly because Krypton blew up due to natural issues. However, there have been some revisions by Brian Michael Bendis uh, to Superman's origin, and I'll have to uh, review those, but I think this book was written before that, so Zod is not even being reasonable here. Hal defends the core. And uh, Zod's wife calls him insolent and weak, and Zod orders uh, Hal taken back to his cell. However, what Zod doesn't know is that Hal Jordan's ring is not a normal Green Lantern uh, ring. It was forged through his own willpower and is essentially a part of him. And he is able to summon the ring to him from where uh, the Eradicator robot is examining it. And it's a great scene where the ring, uh, as Hal's summoning it, flies up and goes right through the Eradicator in order to get to Hal. 
and they bust out, but they are intercepted by Zod's men, and Hal determines that it is important that they get word back to the core, and so he uh, uh, has his ring uh, go on to Kyle and has the ring fly Kyle, who is really, really badly injured, uh, fly him back to uh, headquarters. Back at headquarters, Rainer has so much willpower energy from Hal's ring that they have to drain it off. Guy Gardner wants to go in immediately with an assault force to rescue Hal. John wants to consult with the Guardians, thinking that they have experience uh, from all these years and some uh, knowledge in dealing with Kryptonians. And so he goes off to the Guardians and makes the request. And the Guardians begin to deliberate and point out some of the questions that they need to answer. For example, it's really kind of dangerous to have Zod on this planet under a double yellow sun uh, that has uh, minerals that could be an aid to uh, Kryptonian war plans. In addition, uh, Zod was sentenced to eternity imprisonment in the Phantom Zone. But as one of the Guardians pointed out, that wasn't done under their laws, that was done under Kryptonian laws. However, Stuart doesn't care for all of this deliberation while Hal is in peril, and wants them just to hurry up and okay the rescue force. However, they are so determined to avoid repeating their uh, past mistakes that the Guardians w want to deliberate, and Stuart walks out outraged. Guy Gardner is not one to wait for any deliberations, and doesn't really care what the Guardians are doing, figuring that uh, Hal Jordan would go in for them, and that the Lanterns need to... Uh, rally, and they take as many as they can. Stuart doesn't intervene to stop them from going, and gets called in before the Guardians, and he tells them that, hey, he could not uh, get to them in time to uh, stop them from leaving, and that we just have to accept the situation as it is. To me, I don't like this part of the book with uh, Stewart's overall approach because it's really a passive-aggressive approach to the Guardians, and there's no way that that looks heroic. Meanwhile, Guy and the other uh, Lanterns have uh, arrived on the planet and engaged Zod and family, and it's actually a pretty closely matched battle. In one moment, Zod's young son actually attacks Guy Gardner, and Guy won't actually won't fight back, which is a really unusual thing. But uh, as Guy explains, he was beaten up as a little kid by his dad, and as such, he can't strike a little kid, and he tries to get the kid to back off, but he's refusing to fight back. Whether he would refuse to fight back at the cost of his life even, we don't actually find out. Zod is able to beat Kyle Rayner. Kyle has the strength and power of Hal's ring. However, he's been severely weakened from his injuries. 
However, Hal is once again able to summon his ring and break out of prison and be flying and facing off against Zod. And the rematch goes much differently. It's an epic battle in the sky and Hal is able to make constructs of rockets and jets and none of this really impresses Zod. Until Hal points out that one thing he learned about uh, fighting in the air is that in aerial warfare, you're dealing with a 360-degree battlefield. And so he's able to hit Zod from behind, and then you make another ring uh, construct of another airplane smashing into Zod and really uh, beating him down, and he declares that Zod's under arrest. But then the Guardians arrive and tell how to release Zod and say that this action was taken against the authorization and wishes of the Guardians. Zod protests and says that the idea that the uh, lanterns can go anywhere in the universe they want, whether the inhabitants of the planet want them or not, and impose their will would be tyranny. He has a point, but he's not the best one to be making the point, given that He used his superior power and technology to make himself a god on a planet with Stone Age technology and bring them under his control. But nevertheless, he uh, is able to prevail. They do go ahead and release uh, Kyle's ring back to him, which will allow Kyle to be stable until he gets uh, the surgery he needs. Hal doesn't like this at all, but uh, John Stewart makes the decision and warns Zod that he'll uh, protect the rest of the universe from him. Back at headquarters, Hal continues the argument, but John makes the point that uh, they really don't have enough uh, Green Lanterns to deal with uh, Zod because, in effect, uh, what they would be looking at is a war, and they really are just not in a position, numbers-wise, with everything that's gone on, uh, to be able to do that. And we learn that Zod got everything he wanted out of this. Even though the Guardians got the ring back and everything was resolved amicably, what he really wanted from the rings was to access the information. So he got a map of the entire universe, all the planets, population, demographic information that is uh, contained in the rings. Overall, while there were some problems with this book, I did enjoy it. Uh, I I like the uh, Guardians kind of feeling their way and trying to find out how do you do better. And in some cases, that might lead to some overcorrection, but I think that it's pretty well handled, except for Stewart's passive aggressiveness we do get to see why the Guardians are needed. Because you can't just have Green Lanterns bringing in anyone that they think is a criminal, even without a specific violation of a specific law. You got to see the best and worst of Hal Jordan in this. 
uh, you get to see his courage, his pluck, his willpower, his creativity, and what an awesome fighter he can be. But you also get to see the arrogance. I mean, the whole pretext that Zod had for uh, detaining them and therefore gaining access to the information on the ring was that Hal arrested Zod even though he didn't have a basis for it. However, Hal's arrogance doesn't make him unlikable because it's contrasted with Zod's arrogance. And compared to Zod, Hal looks practically humble. I also like how the story does build some curiosity as to what exactly Zod is uh, doing. And this is definitely leading up to something. Hopefully it'll be something interesting, but it's piquing my interest in uh, what's going on with Zod. So overall, despite some problems, I'll give this one a rating of somewhat classy. A lot of interesting stuff in here and just some fantastic space battles. And to recap, we went ahead and we gave Crisis on Infinite Earths, Companion Deluxe Edition Volume 1, a rating of classy. It provides some great rare reprints that were tied into one of the greatest comic events ever. And we gave Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps, Volume 6, The Will of Zod, a rating of somewhat classy. There's a lot of great fights, and there are some interesting issues raised, even if our heroes aren't always necessarily up to snuff. All right, well, that will do it for now. Join us back here for another edition of the Classy Comics Podcast. In the meantime, send your comments to me at classycomicsguy at gmail.com. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Classy Comics Guy, and be sure and rate and review the program on iTunes. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.